All right, so welcome to the Bailey. This is the show where we shamelessly copy Starfleet Command's logo. I'm your host, Yasin Masut, and today's topic is going to be an exploration of the ethics of space colonization. And joining me today is CRC, Jeff, Master Thief, and McMuster. What area should we start with? Should we talk about the feasibility? Should we... I think we should start with the feasibility and, and because we can pretty much, uh, I mean, a, a, anything beyond that, we can just assume feasibility, but we should discuss it first because of Alternatively, that. Alternatively, we could get an outline of the actual culture war over it. The same day that we're recording is when uh, the Space Force logo came out, and I assure you that that was just a coincidence. <laughs> we didn't plan it around that event. Though in fairness, I do know people from both the Air Force and the Navy who said that they only joined up because Starfleet Command wasn't hiring yet. <laughs> how, how serious was that statement, though? It, it was it was obviously tongue-in-cheek, but in fairness, um, a lot of people you know, have been inspired uh, by Star Trek and science fiction in general uh, to go and, you know, serve in the military and do this, do this kind of work in space. Um, I have friends who've flown satellites, other people who've designed satellites, people who did acquisition. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, ma- it's a major influence. You know, the, the fiction in, in many ways, uh, determines the reality of, of where the science goes. I'll, uh, chime in and just say, I think the Starfleet command logo at, looks horrible from a design perspective it's got too many gradients it's, it's really bad but i i appreciate the simplicity of the united states space force logo yeah can, can you make that the, the thumbnail for the video <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i've ever changed the thumbnail we still use like my crappy ass ms paint sketch of a mott and bailey as <laughs> as the logo yeah. <laughs> <show>. <laughs> Though, in, in fairness, I was talking with a friend of mine uh, who went to the Air Force Academy. If you've seen photos of the Air Force's Academy Chapel, they have that those big triangular spires at the top. Uh, and the shape, uh, has, that appears on the uh, motifs in, in a lot of Air Force heraldry, that, that same shape. And uh, that predates uh, the premiere of the original series by, I think, like four or five years. So, I don't know, it was kind of an inspiration. I was looking on Memory Alpha to see, you know, the um, the... Chap was finished in the early 1960s and Trek premiered in 64, so may have been, not quite sure, but it's plausible. What's the what's the chapel? Uh, it's the Air Force Academy Chapel in Colorado Springs. It, it looks like something out of Star Fox. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> because if it turns out that the, the Air Force is using Star Trek's logo before Star Trek was using that symbol. <laughs> <laughs> Prior art. <laughs> it's like a... Oh holy shit! What a crazy building! Oh, that's that's fucking cool. Sorry. How have I never right, seen well, this before, board, listeners? Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen this before. This is that's an amazing building. Yeah. So as was said prior, it does in fact look like something out of Star Fox, right down to the low poly nine N sixty four level <laughs> design. <laughs> right. Just drive your cyber truck up to it. Yeah. Yeah, and the the back. Behind behind the altar, behind the altar is the shape of the Space Force logo. It's a big window in the shape of that aero aircraft look. So this may be a part of existing. I mean, not Air exactly the same shape. It's it's just a triangle. Exactly. Does <laughs> does Star Trek have ownership of the triangle? Well, I. I- 
I, I'm not a copyright guy, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I think they, I think they can make the argument that it's just generic. Okay. So, so humanity throughout the 20th century has made great strides towards space exploration, at least to a point. Is it fair to say that it's, it's slowed down since the space race? Uh, a large portion of those achievements were, I guess, driven by national pride and more of, fuck yeah, we did it, than necessarily from a practical standpoint, except for research. I gather that science has benefited greatly from from those ventures. But we, we haven't really had anything, I suppose, commercial, which is a true test of widespread adaptability uh, when it comes to sp- space exploration. We're getting it more... Is there any, I don't think there's any plans for commercial ventures except for maybe like space tourism where you pay a million dollars for a zero gravity flight or something like that. Yeah, like zero G's, uh, space hotels, things like that. Space tourism is kind of the the main focus of at least uh, near Earth endeavors. So we put people in the moon, you know, more than almost 50 years ago now. And not much has been done since then we don't have any permanent habitats we don't have any permanent infrastructure to transport between mars or the moon so it's been kind of at a standstill and it's always themed as a potential possibility in the future but at the same time the only things really brought back from space exploration were rocks like there, like there's not much monetary value to space because it seems like there's not too much there. At least not that can be extracted as of now. Especially not from a little tiny lunar lander can back in the 1960s and 70s. Well, its value doesn't necessarily need to be seen from the standpoint of a resource extraction. I mean, it has space in terms of territory. It has a, a, a great deal of new land that can be settled. And that on its own has its own benefit. It doesn't need to be just seen as a like a, an oil well or a strip mine. Well, one advantage of, of space outside of the Earth is that y- it, you have much lower delta V to get to the rest of space. So gravity on Earth is extremely high. And so it's very expensive to build rockets that can reliably get into space. But from the moon or from Mars, it's much. you, you don't have to build nearly as powerful rockets and so it basically opens up a lot more possibilities uh in terms of where to go and what resources you can extract from different uh, celestial bodies you want you want to give us a quick crash course in the concept of delta v <laughs> oh, for people who have a space oh, program in the room <laughs> did you get it from kerbal's space program done? yeah i literally learned orbital, <laughs> orbital mechanics from that game. hey if it works i i avoided that game because it's it was a it looked like a giant time sink and I was like I don't want to waste my my life doing that I want to waste my life doing something else. Well, have you ever played Factorio? No, for the same reason. <laughs> okay. Have you ever Why played any have, video yeah. game? <laughs> yeah, I play video games with endings like Shadow of the Colossus <laughs> or the new. There's God an War ending game. in Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> <laughs> After what, like a hundred hours? Well, you make you make it to Moon. <laughs> it's. It, no, there's a whole uh, solar system. In the alpha, that there's an entire yeah. solar system <laughs> oh, in the final game. But but in all seriousness, there there are think, there are other right, applications. Again, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sidetrack, explain Delta V. (laughs) I think somebody else should explain it who has played Kerbal Space Program. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, We're so we're so qualified to to discuss this. Am I gonna? You're gonna make me? I just outed myself as the person who learned this from video games. Hey, it's okay. We we all learn something from video games. Yeah, because you probably know it better than me because you you felt it. Uh, basically, you can think of it as the energetic cost to get from one place to the other. Not, not necessarily distance traveled, but the actual energy you have to expend. Uh, the the V stands for velocity. The delta stands for change. So change in velocity. So in essence, as soon as you step out of the Earth's atmosphere, a, the rest of the solar system is much more available to you. Yes, yes. Getting up... Uh, the saying goes, once you're in orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. <laughs> because the majority of your delta V, your change in velocity, is expended changing your velocity while in Earth's orbit and within or within Earth's uh, gravity well getting up into orbit. But uh, once you're up there, it takes very little energy to uh, change your velocity and go very long distances. And you can use different drives. I also probably butchered this concept, and I look forward to comments from angry astrophysicists. Uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Fuck them. They don't really have a platform on this. Or maybe just regular physicists. That's probably a little bit presumptuous about our audience, but there's usually <laughs> someone who will correct us. In any event, there's a, um, I, 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 put a, uh, I put a Delta V uh, subway-style map of the solar system showing what uh, the exact amount of Delta V you have to go from Earth orbit to lunar orbit to the rest of the solar system. Oh, what the fuck? That's beautiful. Yeah, and, and Delta V is a useful concept because uh, how far you get is had depends on a lot of factors in rocketry and uh, propulsion. And Delta V is a standard unit you can use to describe getting places, even when the distance and uh, the medium you're traveling through is not constant. I, that's debatable whether or not that makes sense. I hope it helps the viewers a little bit. <laughs> But you can think of it more as like the total energy expended throughout a trip in space. So I'll uh, bring up the one of the articles that we're discussing, and it's by Daniel Lee in uh, Splinter News. And the title is Colonize Mars, Not Until We Learn Some Lessons Here on Earth. And the, the general theme, the general thesis of, uh, of the piece is to make an analogy to prior colonization efforts and to describe perhaps the unfounded optimism that space colonization is often discussed in. So, for example, there is perhaps one of the most well-known individuals within this realm is Robert Zubrin, who is the co-founder of the Mars Society. He came out with a book in the 90s called uh, The Case for Mars. So Robert Zubrin is an aerospace engineer and author and a big proponent of uh, exploring Mars. I read The the Case for Mars. It was a very enjoyable read because it covers the science required to establish yourself rather comfortably, relatively comfortably on Mars, including uh, discussions on what is the most uh, practical method of transportation given the atmosphere on Mars, what are some potentially, what are some feasible ways to potentially terraform Mars so that it becomes more sustainable for human life. So there's a great deal of optimism from this guy. And uh, he's quoted as saying that Mars is to the new age of exploration as North America was to the last. And there's underlying that statement is a similar optimism for the colonization of North America. And there's also a political element to it with regards to reaching for the frontier that we can discuss later. 
So maybe we can start by drawing the analogy between colonization in general and seeing where the analogy falls apart. The first place where the analogy kind of falls apart is that North America, uh, Zubrin got it wrong. North America was already inhabited. There was not just its its own biomes. Uh, there were people here already, and a lot of them had no experience of European diseases. And the reason why uh, you know, the English explorers showed up and, you know, nobody was there was because that they had already died out from diseases that had been introduced as a result of uh, Columbus's first contact in the Americas. And those diseases just spread like wildfire. I don't think we're going to find uh, a similar situation on Mars or anywhere else in the solar system. Uh, I don't think we'll find evidence of any life, much less sentient life, Um I, I think, I think the bioethics of colonization to make, to make absolutely sure that nothing is there first, uh, is well taken. But at the same point, uh, there's, there's a point of diminishing returns where looking for more life is just not going to be useful. Uh, if we haven't found it at a depth of six feet under the Martian soil, it's probably not going to be there. At which point Mars becomes perfectly empty virgin territory, like the old Lockean description of, of how the world was actually all America. That was, uh, John Locke's description of property and that how property, when you start off, it is absolutely worth nothing unless and until you do something productive with it. So that was, uh, the part where Lee kind of lost me, uh, in uh, their argument because yeah, like that's the most obvious objection is that there are no indigenous people in Mars, at least that we know nothing that we can plausibly uh, uh, observe or recognize. So that part doesn't apply, but it's folded under the kind of a broader concern about how this new paradigm would perhaps shift economic relations in, uh, in on earth. And the closest, I guess the most convincing or the strongest argument on under that penumbra is how the discovery of the new world kickstarted the, the slave trade. Well, actually, is that even accurate? Is there, did we, did... Before we dived into that, uh, I, uh, I'd also like to talk a little bit about the nature of colonization. Okay, let's go, let's go in order. Talking about space colonization in general, uh, the, the question is, how general do you want to go? Because the, the concept of colonization goes much further than uh, 17th century through 19th and 20th century colonialism. Humans are a very interesting species in that as of about 15,000 years ago, before even complex civilizations, right, right around the time we were discovering agriculture, we were already a global species. The only spe- uh, global species of megafauna. Like, there's, there's global microbes, a lot of smaller uh, global plants that crop up all across the world. But as far as actual large mammals go, reptiles or whatever, uh, humans are unique in that regard. And that behavior of what we what's often called like a tribal migration uh, is what is known in biology, which applies to humans as well, as colony-forming behavior. You pick up your shit, whatever you can, with your opposable thumbs or your little bee legs, and you carry it on to some new location to exploit the resources there for food or to escape predators or whatever, looking for greener pastures. You're, bas- you're basically saying that the uh, uh, a Mars colonization, as we currently understand it, being that there is no um, known life or and certainly not any intelligent life on Mars, is more akin to... Um, 
say, the uh, indigenous people moving across the land bridge into the Americas from Asia at one point in history than, say, Columbus. Yes, yes. The point is that was colonization. A colony is uh, establishing a new population and previously uninhabited territory, or seemingly uninhabited territory, depending on what your definition of inhabitants is. Because what made colonialism bad was that there were already people there, and that they walked over that, those inhabitants in order to exploit the, the resources and the population. All, uh, a lot, of, uh, everything that I say is the uh, is under the assumption that uh, the colonization of the other uh, objects in the solar system does not displace currently existing uh, sentient life or, sen- uh, or or sapient life. So, uh, kind of uh, on a similar point, when, for example, when people object to saying that Christopher Columbus, quote unquote, discovered the new world, uh, they always like to point out that. It was already discovered, just not by European people. And so maybe instead of talking about colonization, which typically conjures up European emigration to uh, already inhabited worlds, maybe it's best to distinguish it and calling it perhaps displacement rather than colonization. Because if we discuss colonization from and try to draw the analogy more closely to how it how it proceeds um, in nature or as a biological concept, then it makes more sense to talk about it when you're, when a species is moving into uninhabited uh, territory. Uh, that's, that's kind of the Bill Nye approach of, Oh, we'll call them Martian settlements, even though they're still colonies because a colony is a colony, a a bee colony, an ant colony. Those are all colonies. And, uh, the settlements in the new world by Europeans were colonies as well. They picked up shit, they took it with them, and established new settlements, population centers. It's dodging a negative connotation always comes across as kind of kind of a dishonest tactic to me. Yeah, so that's, that's fair, but just to clarify, uh, my goal isn't to dodge the negative connotation, it's more to distinguish between the two phenomenon. So in one instance, we have a population moving into uninhabited territory, and in the other instance, we have a population moving into inhabited territory and displacing the indigenous uh, species or indigenous people there. And I think it's important to distinguish uh, between a, the two. Yeah, imperialistic and colonization would probably be a good <laughs> sure. way to look at it. I don't have any objection to that. Dis- displacement goes along with the fact that you're forming a colony. You can uh, think of it in terms of displacement. Colonization without displacement isn't bad, in my view at least. Or at least it's not, it, it's not necessarily good, but it's more neutral. It's of a different character. Yeah, exactly. So going back to Lee's argument, then it, it does make more sense to draw the analogy to to uh, people crossing the land bridge into North America as the the better analogous situation to colonizing Mars. Yeah, and I think the much of the the impetus behind all of your uh, desire to manifest destiny the shit out of space and Mars, and the uh, desire to jump off that ledge and approach a new untouched frontier is much the same that drives that much the same motivation that drove people through those tribal migrations and those colony forming behaviors. Like that's there for a reason. It's because picking up shop and moving was benefic- beneficial in what's known as the the ancestral environment. 
this is all just so evil say cut talking out my ass so take that with a grain of salt yeah so without getting into biological prescriptivism uh, it is uh, it is easy to observe i think it's obvious to observe that mankind does seem to have a migratory instinct to to an extent um i believe the i think the first stop from the horn of africa happened to be in australia in terms of some of the oldest uh, modern mankind uh, remains to be found were in Australia. And I believe that's around 50,000 years ago. So it's kind of weird that you go from the Horn of Africa to Australia as one of the first stops. So it seems like they moved through Asia without really settling there, at least not as a first uh, pick. So you have to wonder exactly what moves people to do that. And you can also consider Pacific Islanders and how they navigated the Pacific without any modern navigation tools like a compass or a sextant or anything similar to that. And they were able to settle a big fucking ocean uh, using very primitive technology. And I can only imagine what the fuck were they thinking because they have no confirmation whatsoever that there's anything outside of the island that they're in. But yet they still decide to pursue these long voyages and perhaps, you know, presumably a significant amount of them died, which only underscores kind of why that ambition even exists in the first place. Yeah, it, it, that's, yeah, looking up the number here, it's about uh, estimates are floating around 50,000 years ago was uh, the initial sediment of the Australasian islands in Australia. So you can kind of actually kind of sketch a timeline of the uh, a, the emergence of a modern human 200,000 years ago, thereabouts, probably likely longer, uh, coupled with their spread across the globe. Uh, you've got roughly a period of, well, basically up until uh, what's basically geologically, and yeah, and uh, yeah, going up to roughly geologically speaking, a blink of an eye from now, of humans gradually exploring the globe, with uh, not until crossing the Bering Land Bridge just a mere 15,000 years ago. Uh, that we became a global species and established uh, populations on the entire planet. Doesn't that argue against an instinct to explore? Because it doesn't take thousands of years to walk around the world. It takes, like, you can walk across the whole U.S. in, like, I don't know, a few months. It does if you're bringing your family and your uh, means of food. It's still, it's like a factor of a thousand faster. A tribal migration is uh, no mean feat. It's quite the undertaking. Yeah, you also have to adapt to a new environment, get acquainted with the plant life, with the right. different animals, how to hunt them, how to gather them. Figure out what's uh, poison, what's not. Yeah, there's a significant, at least I would imagine there's a significant adaptation period. And that only gets reset once you migrate even further. Yeah, and there's also regional migrations. Most of it, you'll actually, uh, most of the migrations that uh, pre-fixed settlement tribes undertook were through known territory, stuff that you would have lived in within living memory. Uh, so you, you can actually read accounts from these fr uh, back in the uh, the classical period, like when the Gauls were moving around in Gaul and marching through Roman territory. Like the fact that the tribes were constantly picking up and moving around was a source of major conflict in the region at the time. It's actually kind of one of the driving forces of Roman history. 
And it's a big fucking to-do when they do it. Like, oh my god, the Gauls are coming. Because it's an entire civilization picking up roots and moving. Well, and, and even in, in non-European tribes, um, there is a Southeast Asian tribe that, uh, that uh, their ancestor believes uh, says that their uh, ancestors... Uh, descended on a ship from the Pleiades constellation. Uh, there's the Hopi tribe of, of the southwest United States who believes they they passed through several previous worlds before they settled uh, in this one. So in in many ways, this desire to to migrate to move as you know resources or constraints demand, it's it seems to be pretty much hard coded in us. Yeah, see, Vox, we're equal opportunity colonizers. <laughs> I, I cannot argue with that. <laughs> Yeah, actually, yeah, let's make that the <laughs> title of the episode, Equal Opportunity Colonizers. So, uh, I mean, let's consider some of the, uh, there's there's some obvious benefits and obvious motivators for migrating. And one of the ones that I guess you can say Enlightenment era philosophers would focus on, also one that libertarians focus on is the ever-expanding frontier. So there's kind of a, a romantic view of the Old West in in that it's argued that people kept moving west, not only for the land that was available for the picking, but also to move away from ever-increasing, ever-encroaching government regulation and government uh, authority. It was much easier to create your own society away from the watchful eye of, of government and the watchful eye of the state. So you're able to experiment further with how to organize and how to structure your society. Now that you don't have a frontier, at least not one that's easily accessible, you uh, tend to have more lock-in. And the theory, at least, is that you are more susceptible to oppression because you don't have an exit clause available to you. I think there's some merit to this theory in that Western states do tend to be more libertarian than Eastern states in the United States. And that potentially can be ascribed to this desire to move away and to this desire to move towards the frontier for the purposes of evading or for the purposes of escaping oppression. Sounds a lot like uh, James C. Scott's uh, theory of the Zomia, that whole uh, area of Asia, which is rough and mountainous and rugged, where a lot of people... Uh, who felt themselves oppressed by the state, they would flee into these and eventually they, they would develop into their own ethnic groups and tribes and they would be very hard uh, to conquer. Uh, they, they would be in areas where the state really didn't want to go. Uh, they didn't depend on weed crops they de uh, or, or rice. Uh, they depended a lot more on, you know, things that they found along the way. Um, this is, uh, it, it was... Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember his books. I know one of them was called Seeing Like a State, um, and he's he's done a couple of the Zomia. Okay, so that's another you, you, that's another generalizable idea you're thinking. Yeah, of. and I wanna I wanna draw a parallel to um, a relatively modern idea known as seasteading. So Patrick Friedman, son of David Friedman, son of Milton Friedman, he's uh, Milton Friedman. In case anyone knows doesn't know, uh, famous libertarian economist David Friedman, his son. Uh, author and professor. Uh, more specifically, he uh, he wrote the Machinery of Freedom, which is known as kind of the the Bible of anarcho-capitalism. Uh, published sometime in the 1970s, Patrick Friedman kind of carried the torch of the family name. Generally, he works as a Google engineer, but his big er uh, idea from recently was to pursue something called seasteading, 
And it follows the same philosophy of always pushing towards the frontier where you're able to experiment relatively freely. So the idea is if you have an idea for, if you have a plan or a notion for how society can be run, there's nowhere in the world where you can reasonably pursue that without some significant restrictions. Every piece of land on earth pretty much is claimed by some authority. There's a few pockets of unclaimed territory, uh, but they're largely either like completely useless or completely uh, isolated. Yeah, basically you're left with Antarctica. Yeah, and there's a, three, a treaty in place that uh, prohibits territorial acquisitions of Antarctica. So the, the idea is that once you don't have these options, you're kind of screwed because the state, at least the cynical perspective, is that the state knows that you can't escape. And so they know that they don't have any significant incentive not to oppress you totally. So the notion that he's capable to this is to go into the sea. And the way maritime law works is it's governed by treaties. There's no sovereign authority over the open oceans. So if you go from the, the beach of a country, you go out 12 miles, that is territorial waters. You are technically in the country that is adjoining that beach. But if you go out uh, from the beach to 200 miles, that's known as the EEZ, the Economic Exclusivity Zone. And that's where the country that joins that zone has exclusive right for mineral fishing and other economic uh, rights. But beyond that, you're in completely open waters. And the only law that's in place is whatever flag that you happen to be flying on your boat. And there's a few examples of clever usage of this flexibility. There's a Danish group called Women on Waves. And their big stake is they take their Danish flag boat, drop anchor at various parts of the African continent. And the idea is once you're once you step on that boat, you're in Denmark and you follow Danish law. And that way you have access to free, legal, and safe abortions, whereas your local jurisdiction prohibits that. And there's nothing really they can do about that except perhaps prohibit the Danish boat from dropping anchor whatsoever, uh, completely, which probably wouldn't go over very well. So you have the, this method of escaping a potentially oppressive uh, regiment by just walking over into a new jurisdiction. And that's that flexibility gives you a great deal of uh, space to experiment with, you know, some completely wacky ideas. Because right now, uh, if you wanted new territory, uh, the way Patry uh, puts it is that you have three, three ways to do it. You can either stage a coup, and that usually involves by with affiliating with some relatively nasty individuals, and it has a high risk of failure. That's not very desirable. You can you can invade a country that has the same pitfalls, or you can win an election, and that is similarly risky, expensive, and uncertain. Well, there is one fourth way. What is that? You could make it out of whole cloth like they do in the Middle East by dumping sand into the ocean to make more <laughs> land. Well, that kind of gets into uh, this this notion of uh, creating new jurisdictions wherever there's there's wherever it's feasible. And Patry wanted to pursue. Um, maritime engineering and uh, kind of focusing on the open ocean. But there's been similar ventures known as charter cities. Uh, I don't know if how many have been successful 
uh, and making great headway. But that's kind of currently on the work of transposing these new jurisdictions to a place where they could be, I guess, more attractive to the local population. Seasteading was a was a big reason why I went to law school, actually. Oh, interesting. Uh, because around that time, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to pursue. And I figured uh, that's when I started reading uh, about Patrick's crazy idea. And I thought it was very interesting. And I thought, you know, worst case scenario, I go to law school and I end up just being an attorney. It doesn't seem too bad. But my initial motivation was to see how I can assist with this venture. And I figured since I'm not an engineer, the best way I can potentially assist is to be uh, to explore the legality of it and the, the diplomatic uh, environment of it. So that was a big motivator for going to school. And whenever people ask me that, I usually give them an enigmatic answer. And I say, oh, yeah, I wanted to create countries in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and then just leave it at that. <laughs> well, well, that's a better answer than trying to be Jack McCoy from Law & Order. I've, I don't think I've ever watched Law & Order. <laughs> was that your motivation? Uh, yeah, I, I, pro I probably watched too much of that as a kid. <laughs> I, did, I watched uh, my biggest Law & Order binge was when I was studying for criminal law. My friends and I watched Law and & Order and we poked holes in all the and found all the problems. <laughs> Anyway, back back to uh, space colonization. <laughs> so was, yeah, so that's how it works as in international waters. Is if you build a space station, what like jurisdiction applies then? Is that new jurisdiction that you have control over as the person who founds it? Or uh, no, what? so it's always tied to uh, similar to how maritime law works. Space law is very similar. They kind of adopted space the base, the same basic yeah. uh, principles when they adopted the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. Uh, in that you, you, you have to be tied to a sovereign country. If you do not fly a flag, the way it works right now, if you don't have a flag flying on your ship, you're considered an outlaw and you are subject to a use of force by anyone that you come across any specifically any other country that comes across. They're al allowed to engage in, co in armed conflict if you're not flying a flag. Yeah, essentially they they tr they treat you like a pirate. Uh, if you remember that that movie Captain Phillips, that was based on a, a real incident where you had Somali pirates where they were not flying Somali flags. They were not considered part of the nation. They were just uh, seizing tankers for the heck of it, just just for the for the money. They were seizing tankers, cargo ships, um, and they they were they are treated under international law as hosty humanis generis uh, enemies of all humanity. So anybody can stop you. Anybody can do whatever. Um, you do have to have a flag state, whether it's a ship, whether it's an aircraft, and you seems right. They just basically carry that forward from maritime law to aerospace law to now space law. The the major difference is that space law is much narrower, obviously, uh, but the same principle applies. So when you're looking at the space station, every module potentially comes from a different country. So the jurisdiction which applies depends on which module you're currently in. So you can go from France to Japan to Russia to the United States depending on which part of the space station you're in. I suppose it's good that the astronauts all get psychological screening because if there is ever any kind of crime up there, it would be just a gigantic mess. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thankfully, the, uh, thankfully, the astronaut crime has been limited to Earthside. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so if, uh, for example, if you know someone kills someone in outer space, it depends on what jurisdiction they happen to be in. It would be, I suppose, very complicated if it was 
in space, like in the vacuum, then, you know, some very well-paid attorneys will debate exactly who has jurisdiction over that. Probably whoever the... Whichever module is physically closest. <laughs> or or whoever uh, the astronauts belong to, wh- whichever country they belong to. I'm sure this probably has come up before involving the open wa- open waters. If it's if it's happened on the ocean, they'll they'll probably just import the principal whole cloth up up into space because we're we're human beings and we like analogies. So if we're actually doing the crazy shit, how do you actually go about uh, founding your space anarcho syndicalist commune? Well, this is the part where it's untested and uh, likely to face some significant pushback. Because if you're uh, just claiming, let's start with like, you know, a more down to earth analogy, but if you're just claiming parts of the ocean, uh, well, you, you face the same issues with being considered enemy of mankind. If you're not flying a flag, then you're not a sovereign and you're therefore subject to, to force. So the, the idea, at least like the proposal is to borrow or license some amenable countries that are willing to uh, give their flag at least temporarily for the time being. And this already takes place. Uh, shipping containers fly the Liberian flag for whatever reason. So even though they're built in South Korea or uh, Denmark, they al- almost always fly the Liberian flag. Maybe not almost always, but a significant portion of them. Yeah, it's it's called it's it's called it's called a flag of convenience. Basically, uh, you want to go to countries where um, a lot of countries like Liberia, Panama, uh, the Bahamas have made a whole business out of this, where you register your ships. Uh, there's there's no requirements for any sorts of crew or any sort of training. It's it's very much unregulated, uh, and there's and a lot of countries are thinking that you know maybe that's that's not such a good idea from a health and safety perspective. The disadvantage of a flag of convenience is that your government like the government that you, you know, grew up in won't protect you on the sea, right? Like the Coast Guard or the U.S. Navy is not going to come along and help you because if you're attacked by pirates and you have a, a Liberian flag. Uh, that's unlikely. I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so so you can kind of get around that if you want to have your an Ar- and Kapistan space station then by ha- flying flags of convenience, even if you're not technically connected to a... Uh, even if you're not technically connected to a country? Yes, but you have... You kind of have to you have to admit that that's kind of a dodgy situation because it's only as good as other countries allow it to happen. Right. Uh, the way international law works is kind of fucked up in that. Sure, there's treaties and laws in place, but countries do whatever the fuck they want, uh, and if they have enough power, then like, what do you? There's nothing really you can do uh, to push back. Um, I mean, similar to how Russia just took annex Crimea. Right. Their response is like, okay, what are you going to do about it? It doesn't matter what treaties are in place if they want to, and if they have the power, they can do it. So when it comes to sovereignty, the the main benefit, the main benefit and establishment of sovereignty is when another country recognizes you, and the more countries that recognize you, then the more stable of a fa- of a, of a base that you're on. Otherwise, it's just kind of up in the air with regards to what your status actually is, and if you cause enough of a stir then countries nearby or uh, countries that disapprove of your venture might step in and do something about it. Did any of you read the like the Powers of Earth, the fiction book? It got the Prometheus Award a few years back. Because I, I didn't know about the space law stuff until just now, but it, it basically, it's, it's one of those sci-fi books where uh, 
some anarcho-capitalist guy starts a colony on the moon because uh, he and a few of his friends invent uh, anti-gravity. And the governments of the world don't have that yet. So they're the only moon colony. And they have a little, you know, anarcho-capitalist city up there. Uh, they take a bunch of tunnel boring machines from Earth and, and use them to drill tunnels. And so that way, uh, yeah, anyway, and then eventually Earth figures out about it. If it finds out that there's a, t- that there's a, a colony up there and and Earth is, uh, you know, the, 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 the equivalent of the U.S. government in the future is is not happy about that and just attacks them. And it just, yeah, it does it's, it's exactly what you described of you, the, you, no, no, no country, no flag. Uh, yeah, we, we take you over. And I think that the, uh, well, earth attacking a, a moon base or, or, uh, anything further out does have to struggle with the Delta V problem, which works very, very much in favor of the, uh, um, people with the high ground yeah dropping dropping rocks down the well is not a hard thing to do <laughs> yeah the, the moon is a harsh mistress you just have to apply a little deceleration the i know the author of the of this book is, is a huge robert heinlein fan yeah uh they got around the delta v issue by just positing anti-gravity so you don't have that um and Problem so solved. you can't you can't propel things as much yes. yeah and that was like the yes, one apl- up, yeah it's like kind of like the bible on the in, in the the uh <laughs> What is that? The Werner Benji novels, uh, The Peace War, and Moon in Real Time. It's like scrappy. I am adding that to my reading list. That's that's Artemis, listeners. We're not being paid for this. <laughs> <laughs> By Andy Weir, author of The Martian. Should we should we get like some uh, like an an Audible sponsorship? <laughs> I'd be fine. Did you think they'd sponsor us? <laughs> yeah, I wonder how many how many sponsors we'd actually pass screening for. <laughs> we haven't touched upon that many controversial topics. We could probably we're there's all these libertarians around here be able to get VPN, I'm sure. <laughs> NordVPN. <Yeah>. NordVPN. <laughs> Tired of the government watching you? <laughs> and of watching course, your there's pornography always, habits. <laughs> there's always raid shadow legends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. I, I it's, it's a stupid mobile game that's oh. uh, everyone's advertising for because they will have anyone endorse it, <laughs> even if they're like, actively slagging the game off in their endorsement. Just mentioning it will get you money. It's a uh, big joke. Anyways, that's your edition of Know Your Meme. Uh, thank you for attending, <laughs> listeners. This will be the end of the episode. So, uh, where were we? <laughs> Maybe trying to talk more about Mars. We can establish that legally. By the tenets of space law as they exist, it's possible to make use of space exploration as a means of uh, performing experiments on a societal scale, yeah. creating experimental communities. So I wanted to make, add one last point to... Um, I'm drawing the analogy to the sea setting because I think that's far more likely than space set setting or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but th- you, you have to consider that the main benefit to, or at least the main motivator behind sea setting would be to engage in activities that are either restricted or prescribed by your current jurisdiction. Otherwise, there's no real benefit or need to exit. If you're perfectly content where you live, there's no reason to leave. So if you want to consider what are going to be the most popular ventures for someone to emigrate, let's say from the United States, the big ones to draw on would probably be sex tourism, uh, drug experimentation, and I think more realistically is medical tourism, which already takes place. So the idea is you have a ship or some sort of floating station 
park itself 200 miles from the United States and intentionally attract residents for what they're missing out on. And you can meet, you can see the problem with the, if it becomes a drug haven, the Coast Guard is immediately going to uh, get involved. Even though it's outside the 200-mile uh, period, they're going to conjure up some uh, justification for uh, intervention. Similar to uh, sex tourism, they're going to use some basis either to combat sex trafficking or something similar. Uh, and even medical tourism might get some pushback from established healthcare centers in the United States. So whatever you do has, by definition, has to annoy the jurisdiction that you're drawing people from. And that put that opens you up to attack and conflict. Uh, and, and you're already on a shaky legal position by declaring yourself, by establishing yourself out in open seas. And this only manages to draw out the ire. So the most successful ventures are practically have to be kind of relatively quiet or attracting kind of the most downtrodden of people because otherwise they have to be really desperate before they even want to pursue that. Well, I, I think there's there's plenty of that for seasteading. Like, you know, the Marshall Islands uh, is a small island chain under United States jurisdiction. It is disappearing because of rising sea levels caused by climate change. Um, and if you can think of, of I, I can think of no, no other group that uh, has the uh, the cultural means and the capability and the need uh, to go out and seastead because uh, they're they're not going to be left with with any other land uh, to stead on it unless they want to you know come to the United States or some other country and sort of lose their own culture. Either way, I find it interesting the idea of uh, space exploration, not so much for purposes of just straight pragmatic economic gain, but more so for the uh, pie in the sky. Uh, sorry, that's probably a little uncharitable. Um, experimental community forming and trying out new things. I mean, you can say pie in the sky. Uh, I think it, that's why a lot of libertarians love the show Firefly because it basically described that scenario where you have uh, the Alliance being the representation of an oppressive bureaucracy and the space fed boys. Yeah. Whatever you want to call them. And everyone's kind of running away from them and trying to stay under the radar because they don't like being under their yoke. And it draws a, a, a direct analogy to the Wild West, people moving away from the established urban centers to be able to do whatever they want. And if you look at um, a lot of past colonization, it was driven you know, precisely by people uh, who didn't want to live under um, oppressive government for all sorts of reasons. You had the uh, migrations from England uh, to America because of the wars of religion. You had the forced migrations from England to Australia because, you know, they were criminals. Um, you know, I, I look back in my own, in my own family tree and it's, it's a lot of people who just didn't want to serve, uh, in the wars of the German Kaiser or the Austrian emperor or, or whoever. Uh, how expensive was transportation back then relative to, to like what the cost of trans transportation to say Mars is today? In terms of time, it's about the same, but like, I'm just wondering how, how like feasible that, like that analogy is like, let's say it costs half a million dollars to, in nine months to get to Mars. Uh, is that like, you, you're not going to be shipping prisoners there, right? That's, that's really expensive. Well, the, the more, the more you do something, the cheaper, uh, the cost per unit, uh, becomes, uh, I think 
you know, once once the technology becomes stable and there is a stable or, or, or growing market for it, uh, the the cost uh, per per unit of exile is going to go down. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm 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 the sort of person who is really cynical about governments and what they can do. Is like, oh, you're a troublemaker. So uh, off to Mars with you. I mean, human 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 yeah, human beings have done it before. We're bastards. We do that. We people think that sort of way. There's also more costs than transit costs too. Like especially if you look at like say Eastern Seaboard uh, early colonies, like they were absolute shitholes for the during through the 1600s. Uh, yeah, Jamestown, many of them, a lot of them just straight up collapsed. Mm-hmm. Well, and similarly, we I'm we to, I don't I don't know how much it's done anymore, but uh, uh, I've heard of situations where judges even recently have allowed people to avoid punishment by enlisting in the military. So, you mm-hmm. know, you want to, you want to avoid punishment? Oh, here, here's a, here's a ticket to Mars. Go have fun. Right. Well, there's a, there's a bit of a difference there too. in the, the, let's compare Australia to Mars. Uh, that's probably actually a little bit untimely right now, isn't it? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> I'm keeping, well, you, can, you can't really breathe what, in, the, you can't really breathe in either place. <laughs> uh, but the okay, what, what the idea of taking a convict, the the common criminal, someone who's going to receive a prison sentence, that type of person, people generally wind up that way because they don't really have much in the way of marketable skills and aren't entirely useful. They resort to crime as a backup. Depending on your theory of crime, that's another episode. And in doing so. Uh, you're sending someone who's not going to be very useful for the type of work that needs to be done on, say, a Martian surface colony. Right. So the idea of treating Mars as a penal colony isn't exactly the one that holds up well, prior to, it, say, in, terraforming in, 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 in the initial stages of colonization, and uh, Robert Zubrin has done this, uh, Carl Sagan did it in Pale Blue Dot, and most recently uh, in fiction versions, uh, the expanse, the the whole idea that a true Martian colony, at least at the very beginning, you will have to be underground because there's no other way to protect yourself from the harsh surface radiation. So basically, you're going to be living down in a hole, and in order to expand that hole, you just need um, you you need drilling or boring equipment, or you need a lot of convicts with pickaxes. That that and uh, you know. It, there is something to be said for um, it maybe certain personality types being more prone to uh, criminality in our current setup, but actually would flourish in a frontier setup. That's a good point. That, though, if you're in a pressure-sealed frontier setup, it, it may not be the, the, the wisest choice, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Because it, it, it's not exactly, you know... You're, as cool as it would be, we're not having we're not going to be landing neato frontier towns on the surface of Mars. That's cool and all, but that's not. It's going to be a rather delicate operation, at least initially. So it makes more sense with the the limited uh, with a limited pool of people you can support for the work being done. Uh, I'm expecting if it's if you were to be doing this. You'd want to be uh, heavily screening the personnel you're picking to send. And, and I think you're t- we're talking – there's multiple phases to th- the theoretical colonization of Mars. You know, the, the initial stage, you're going to have professionals with uh, tremendous amounts of education um, and, and a death wish to go up there. Um, but and, and a relatively small number. But after after the ground has been seeded somewhat, then you're going to have uh, you know the the more uh, you're just going to need labor, really. Okay, yeah, I suppose for 
after a certain point, hands are hands, if you can teach them to use a spacesuit and a pressure suit. Assuming we're not all replaced by robots, then. (laughs) (laughs) It is interesting. I do love how quickly the line between uh, scientific speculation and science fiction just blurs right off to the point where you can't tell what you're talking about, a fictional scenario (laughs) or a real one that's plausible. So it's hard to, I mean, part of this discussion is, is going to be stymied by the fact that we are speculating on how societal dynamics are going to shift with the cheaper and more widespread space uh, transport. So we're kind of guessing and looking at sci-fi movies and sci-fi, we're looking at science fiction to see what society could potentially look like and trying to draw inferences from that. When I, well, uh, when I proposed this topic, part of what uh, I was doing was, you know, assuming all of that, assuming the colonies could exist and that the technology was solved to at least a uh, a level that allowed it to happen. And then I was uh, looking at the ethics of what happens then, such as, um, uh, you know, choosing people who, which people go on the initial trip. Uh, do you, do you screen for genetic uh, issues there? Do you, you know, prevent multiple blood types because, you're going to have a small number of people and not a lot of resources, that kind of thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and well, similarly, like, okay, let's, let's say a colony is established on Mars uh, and there, there's people living there. And uh, after a while, uh, people do what people do and you'll, you'll have a, f- a full generation that is never set foot on earth. Um, those, those people may not be able to return. It may be it may be that until medical technology allows them to grow stronger bones and whatever, I mean, growing up in two fifths gravity is probably not conducive to somebody who can um, take full Earth gravity after uh, you know, after a while. Yeah, that's going to be the the one of the biggest, or one of the, I anticipate one of the biggest challenges to the, will be the adaption to microgravity or not microgravity but low gravity. Microgravity is what you're experiencing when you're actually in space. Um, and there's a whole host of uh, health problems that come from spending uh, extended periods of time uh, in microgravity. You start looking like a chubby Most, baby. Yeah, that too. Like, you basically become distended. You're like your gravity does a lot to tone you out, actually, um, just because it draws your blood down to a specific spot and your interstitial fluid down towards your down towards the ground. Yeah. So it's all going in one direction. Without that, it just kind of you balloon yeah, out. Yeah, muscles start atrophying. Bone density falls. Um, a whole and your eyes, uh, your eyes become myopic, uh, because the the fluid in your eye expands. Mm-hmm. It's it's generally not good for life. Yeah, yeah, we're not. We're, there's nothing on Earth really adapted to living in uh, without gravity, including us. Except for so tar- taking that away. Except for tardigrades. <laughs> they're not living. They're <laughs> they're dormant. <laughs> So, yes. I mean, the, the flip side of relying on science fiction for speculation is looking to the past and trying to, trying to draw these tortured analogies with how colonization has uh, borne out in the, in the previously, even though there's some significant differences. So we're kind of, I don't know, <laughs> I don't want to necessarily want to end on that note, but we're kind of grasping. Well, we have to talk about the feasibility of it, too. Yeah. Well, from at least from a historical perspective... There's never been a shortage of people willing to go out into the frontier and explore. Uh, I I recently watched the, the show called The Terror, which I highly recommend. It's a fantastic uh, first season. And it covers 
kind of the ill-fated voyage of this Arctic exploration ship from the 1850s from, uh, from England. Everyone on that ship ended up dying, uh, but they're not sure exactly why. They suspect that their food was uh, poison. Uh, they froze to death. They probably killed each other because they, there was lead in their cans. So they kind of fell apart and resorted to cannibalism. And you have to, I mean, I wonder, like, why the fuck would they do this? Part of it is this quest for glory. And a significant portion is probably just economic reality, where you have a job and it pays more. So you're willing to accept the hazard pay and you go along with it. So then the feasibility reduces to the economics of, does it, is it, you know, worthwhile to keep people on Mars and, and, and do work there and then either ship goods back or perform services there that can't be done on earth. I just, I don't imagine that there's going to be a shortage of people. So, and if, if feasibility is an issue, it's not going to be either by labor or willingness to engage in it. Cause it seems like at least for human uh, mankind, there doesn't seem to be a, a material bottom to how low we were willing to go on that front. Well, that and and I think that if you have once you get out uh, of the Earth's gravity well, um, there there there's pretty clear economic advantages uh, or or things that can be done. So, for instance, a- asteroid mining and uh, and all that. Now, granted, those are fairly f- f- uh, much further out than simply putting people on Mars. But zero once you have people for another one. Yeah, but once you have people out of the well, maybe uh, you know, then there's some people are going to want to go back down, may, but may not want to go back down to the same one. Yeah, and, and you can use different drive technology if you're outside of an atmosphere, so you don't need messy chemical rockets that explode. Um, you, you, yeah, you, yeah. Well, ion beam. I, yeah, yeah. The, the feasibility of colonization in space is variable. I mean, it, it can be, it can become more feasible, it can be less feasible as the way that technology changes. Uh, the necessity of it, uh, I'm pretty much a, a believer in uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, quip that uh, asteroids are nature's way of saying, how is that space program coming along? Uh, yeah. I, I think eventually, uh, un- unless we want to keep all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak, uh, I think humanity is going to have to become uh, an, an interplanetary species if we don't want to be wiped out uh, by, you know, asteroids or comets or coronavirus, like what, what just flew out of China. Uh, I think uh, one area that we haven't really addressed, I don't know if we can, is the argument against colonization. And I'm, I'm guessing like that the main one is... Uh, basically a conservation argument. What if we kill life on Mars, even if it's just single-celled? Yeah, essentially turning Mars into a nature reserve. I have a... I have a... I mean, I I see that argument, and I, I think it's a... It's definitely one that people hold, but I have I have a lot of problems with it because okay, fine. If you if you believe that we shouldn't walk on Mars because we might kill a single-celled organism, uh, next question is, do you support abortion? Because if you do, you're being really inconsistent here. Well, I don't. I don't think the conservation argument necessarily hinges on uh, protecting, like you know, avoiding killing a single cell. I think it's preser- preservation for the sake of preservation. It doesn't. Yeah, it does, so it's not hinged on whether anything alive exists or not. Yeah, it's not really a material concept. It's more the romantic conception of the pristine wilderness, that which is violated by the explorer. 
that that's that's the the mind frame is coming at it. It's not from a materials perspective of harm induced upon a given number of cells. Because otherwise, you wouldn't be able to getting up out of your chair and putting your foot on the floor. You'd uh, kill hundreds of microbes. Right. Well, it, it wouldn't be the the killing of the cells. It would be the fact that if you killed, maybe there's some life on Mars that you know there's a, it's a very very unique branch, obviously. And by killing that life, you would lose out on some sort of useful knowledge. That's the only objection I can think of. Yeah, I really don't think it's possible to uh, argue somebody who thinks, uh, who, who, who believes that, you know, human beings can't spread into space because we will start killing uh, life and, and we have no right to be out there uh, or we'll just bring our, our current, you know, racism or sexism or whatever other isms you believe in. I, I really think that this, it's kind of, it's kind of an anti-utopian view of humanity that, that we are so flawed, that we are so imperfect, that, uh, we are, we are terrible people. And if we spread out into space, we're just going to keep spreading our terribleness out there. Uh, we need to perfect ourselves first before we even think about going to space. And, and that, that's just, that is just such a dim and, and negative view of, of, of humanity. And, and that perspective, I'm pretty sure that perspective is, almost uh, just as much informed about science fiction as our own. Because that's pretty much, you take a science fiction story 50-50, it's either humans being uh, assholes like they were on Earth to one another, or humans pushing frontiers, usually one or the other. That's kind of the two archetypes uh, of those stories that involve space exploration. I guess I don't want to delve, dwell too much on this uh, subject, because we don't really have someone that can argue in favor of that view. But I do, I, I do want to steel man it to an extent. And the idea is, at least from an environmental perspective, sometimes it's worth preserving the environment for its own sake, absent any um, sanctity of life argument or anything uh, that has a practical effect. And if someone deeply believes that mankind is a catastrophic steward of planets thus far, then I guess you can make the argument that until humanity has formed the requisite culture to not completely fuck up whatever environment they're in, perhaps we should pause before we commit any irreparable damage to a new environment. I don't share that belief, but I think I, I see like some fairness to to that position. Yeah, and, and I, I do th- I do think it's 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 well taken that you know humans have have not always been great stewards of the earth, but at the same time, it's, it's sort of at an N equals one sample size. Um, you know, it, uh, there, there are, there are going to be natural features on Luna and Mars and every other worlds. Um, even if they don't have life that they would, act, they would actually be worth protecting, uh, either out of aesthetics or uh, if you're going out to a place like Titan, which is a gigantic, uh, methane ocean with an ice crust, but there's an ocean underneath that may have life in it. Um, I, 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 I think, I think it's worth doing sort of, uh, scientific due diligence to see if there is the possibility of, of life in the world, uh, on, on these other worlds that we're going to. And, you know, being, being careful at first until you've verified that there is no life to be affected at which, at which point, you know, you block off the pretty stuff and then go to town. There's also the argument that, in going to other worlds, the the idea of treating uh, space exploration like a bug out, you're abandoning Earth essentially, you, and 
using it to bail us out of our problems on Earth and ignore local, social, and climatological problems. Did anyone ever make that argument in the colonial era, era that by abandoning Europe, you, you know, you're, you're doing the same thing, or is that just a new, a new argument nowadays? I'm sure you can find examples because there were there was a quite the brain drain, but I'm not sure if they were conscious enough of it to be concerned by it. We could have had an entire show on Alpha Centauri because <laughs> <laughs> that's prime culture war meat. Yeah, culture war game reviews that'd be fun. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, just the the different factions that are represented. Oh yeah, there, yeah. I, I never, forgot that about game that. was actually just a little too before my time. That was at like the Civ two level where I was uh, too much of a brainlit child to play it properly. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think I I don't think any other game comes close to replicating that environment and that um, situation. It's excellent, and it, the quotes that it has, the hypothetical technology that it portrays, are still kind of mind blowing to me. I, I did. I didn't like is is sort of uh, the the trope in science fiction is planet of hats. They were sort of like factions of hats. So you, you had the uh, the virtuous uh, scientists. Um, you had the the depraved militarists. The evil. I don't. I don't think it was a virtuous scientist. It, it was kind of seen like the environmentalist kind of melded was obsessed with uh, worshiping the planet because they saw it as a sentient being, and they. Uh, may form the symbiotic relationship with the sentient fungus on that planet. So they were kind of seen as, you know, crazy. Uh, and, uh, even the university, which was the technolo the scientist, they, they start off with like negative two ethics because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't care or they had less scruples about what to, what to pursue, uh, in terms of feasible technology. I pretty much, except maybe like, the UN guy, he, the Gandhi of space, uh, he was pretty much the only like nice guy. Everyone else was just batshit insane. Who, yeah, everyone, everyone gets to use the nerve staples though, right? Yeah, that's true. That's what I know from that game is nerve stapling your population. Uh, <laughs> it's a great game. Um, I love it. But yeah, the, the the big one that we didn't really touch on because none of us can really wrap our heads around it so much is the uh, is that last one I mentioned the. Uh, abandoning the earth and its problems here and now and but i don't think the scale of space exploration and that zero sum that zero sum perception of space exploration that uh if you're investing in that you're taking away from that you're not going to get there's an ex there's returns there that i see yeah. that other people don't i think there's a coordination issue that's i think that's a that's the main argument against that uh because you can't stop all of humanity from you can't get them to all agree. Okay, we're not going to do any space exploration, right, guys? <laughs> Everyone's going to do their own thing. Some people are going to be very far ahead. Some people are going to be very far behind. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a massive collective action problem. I mean, even even with the with the outer space treaty, which says like you know no nation shall claim any part of the uh, of of the moon or other celestial bodies for their own. As soon as uh, space travel, space colonization becomes technologically and financially feasible, that thing's going the way of the Kellogg Briand Pact. Yeah, and um, wait. I can you tell it, us what the Kellogg Briand Pack is? Kellogg Briand Pack was an attempt after World War One to uh, get every nation on Earth to uh, to forswear war, and it was it was it was, it was, it was passed in 1920, and some people still hold to it, but it was like a little thing that that started in 1939, basically, kind of you know, it was overtaken by events. <laughs> 
McMuster, I think, was asking about the uh, situation where um, there's a, uh, a, a people against colonization because it would uh, abandon the earth. And I think that I don't have as big an argument with that line of reasoning as I do with some of the others that we've talked about. Um, now, my caveat on that is, uh, yes, I think that perhaps governments aren't the proper vehicle to do the initial stages of this because governmental resources are limited and anything you do in that case might be in the short run zero sum but to stop private uh industry from doing it i then i that i have a huge problem with because that's not that you know that's somebody taking their own resources not part of a government not part of a you know shared commonwealth and doing whatever the hell they want with it yes at the same time many of the people making these arguments believe that uh the private interest shouldn't be a thing. Well, yeah, but they're wrong. Right. Yes, yeah. Welcome back to Libertarian Power Hour, everyone. Yeah. I knew that was going to go over like a lead balloon. Complain about space junk because like Elon Musk launches his car like on the asteroid belt or something. Yeah. Well, no, well, okay. no I, well spe- speaking of, of, of the whole satellite problem, there is a, a loss. There is a... Uh, it was it was a law review article uh, by some by some tool at Vanderbilt. Uh, he was saying that uh, the you know Elon Musk is launching a whole bunch of communication satellites. These are these are micro satellites. Would be like a fleet of three thousand. Uh, Jeff Bezos is, is thinking about them, and and he's saying that this was in violation of the National Environmental Policy Act because we're we're trying to restrict certain. Uh, certain spaces for astronomy use, like the National Radio, uh, Dark Zone in West Virginia, a couple of others. And these satellites, they are, they're all, they're all big and reflective and they're messing up astronomy. So they, they should have been, these permits that the FCC granted should have been subject to the National Environmental Policy Act. And, and there's, it's, it's just, it's just really, you know, it's, it's driven by, by a lot of, of fear and uncertainty and, and, and doubt, the traditional FUD. Well, uh, if we're talking about space debris, that's kind of a lost cause. Like the the Earth is already surrounded by a shit ton of debris that is incredibly dangerous, even when it's small. the The premise of the movie Gravity is is very real. Like you can get really fucked over by a single screw. Well, the uh, yep, we, uh, Kessler syndrome. Yeah, Kessler syndrome. You that is something that. Uh, we we do have to that that would be an environmental concern in, in space, but it's it's limited to the immediate vicinity of the planet. Yeah, because as you get further from the Earth, the uh, the space that debris can occupy increases. It's exponentially right. The the cubed when you're yep. cubed. Yeah, yeah, cubed. So there's a three <laughs> rather than a two there in the exponent. Yeah, we live in a Euclidean uh, space. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, thank you for reminding me. Yeah. I forget about that dimension sometimes. Um, <laughs> do any of you remember that scene in Starship Troopers where they're on the spaceship flying to the bug planet and their ship almost gets hit by a rock thrown from the bug planet? This is probably like a really obscure scene. You might just want to cut it out. But No, no, I, 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 rem- I believe I remember the scene, but, it, uh, uh, but yeah, that was a long time ago, that movie. But that always, I I saw that at an age I was in I, I post Kerbal Space Program, so I knew just how remarkably improbable that was of just how much space there is between an interstellar space, and that's a really fucking dumb moment and a really dumb thing to pick out in such a dumb movie. <laughs> but that's probably the thing well, that bothered me the most I, while watching. I want to just like have a one sentence defense of Starship Troopers. I think it's an excellent commentary on fascism and how. I, I think it's amazing watching it and comparing it to 
the response to the war on terror by the United States and drawing the parallels by, between the two. Which it managed to predate yeah, somehow. Significantly. <laughs> yeah, significantly. But you see I, kind of like the same tenants. So uh, also like the, the director of that movie is one of my favorite ever. Uh, and well, Paul and of, Verhoeven? And of course, Star, isn't Starship Troopers a Heinlein story from like the 60s? Oh, yeah, yeah but it, was, it, was, like, it was basically Verhoeven, uh, he got like one chapter into Highland's book, couldn't read it, and he says, okay, we're just going to take the, uh, the, the character names, we're just going to make this a high camp parody of fascism. Which is, which, okay, okay, if you, if you want to do it, a, a movie about that, that's fine. Don't call it Starship Troopers. Don't steal Highland's working characters to, to, to make, to make your, 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 your political point, because Highland's treatment was, was a lot more you know, it was a lot more subtle in in, in dealing with with fascism. He was ex- uh, the the entire point of of, of Highland's uh, politics in that book is explaining how and why fascism arose on Earth. And spoiler alert is because the civilians didn't know what they were doing. So, uh, as as I I keep seeing in, in numerous contexts to people who are concerned about fascism, if you don't want the uh, if you don't want your country to turn fascist, don't be Weimar. <laughs> Master Thief, this is how the Mormons feel, you know, with Book of Mormon. They just got got Google bombed basically and people Google Book of Mormon and now it's just the the South Park play and not, that's, not the actual book. That's 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 probably a really fair point. I will bring that up to my Mormon friends next time I talk to them. <laughs> uh oh, you said one thing about interstellar distances that drove you crazy. Uh I fun fact this is the one way in which the imperial system is better than the metric system. There are about 65,000 inches in a mile, and there are about 65,000 astronomical units in a light year. So if the in, if the hmm. sun were one inch away from the Earth, you scale everything down, then Alpha Centauri is four miles away from that. Metric is still better. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'd rather I'd rather be I'd rather be multiples of ten than multiples of whatever the fuck that was. Yeah. So tune uh, in next week where we debate the metric versus the imperial system. No, I, will. <laughs> I mean, I will actually take a stand in favor of Fahrenheit for everyday use, but I don't want to get off that. Uh, I don't want to jump off that bridge. Just pick one and stick with it. No more right. Mars observers, please. We need a we need a two yeah. two drink minimum for that that episode. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, let's make it two hours long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> well, okay. Is that a good stopping point? <laughs> I guess. I think we're good. Good as any.